Let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do pray that your name would be holy, that your kingdom would come, and that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Father, I pray for the church that is gathered here this morning. I pray that those who hear would be like the Bereans who examined to see if what was being said aligned with the scriptures. I pray that we would be a congregation that examines everything spoken from this pulpit to see if it aligns with the truth of your word. And Father, we pray that you would form us in deep conviction and that you would transform our lives and conform us to the image of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. This particular sermon may challenge you this morning. I'm asking you to take a deep dive with me into an important but frequently misunderstood issue. And anytime there is confusion or half-truths bouncing around our mind, that interferes with our capacity to live a faithful and fruitful Christian life. We, we, we want to understand what the Bible teaches and to have as much clarity as possible so that we can put the Word into practice. And uh, in keeping with what this sermon is all about, I, I, I want you to judge this sermon. I do not want you to uh, judge it by way of a knee-jerk reaction or your, your first emotional response, but rather to judge thoughtfully and soundly to see if it conforms with what Scripture teaches. The issue that I want to talk about this morning is the act of judging. There are spiritual forces at work in the world that are designed to put you on the defensive, knock you off balance, and silence you. There are satanic schemes at work in the visible church that are intended to prevent you from judging. And these forces and schemes can have the appearance of plausibility, but upon closer inspection, they are problematic and misleading. One person can, can take a Bible phrase out of context, such as, thou shalt not judge, and put it onto a sign that you hold up in the bleachers during a football game, or another person can put a phrase like, leave the judging to Jesus on a t-shirt and expect that people will buy it. Someone else can pressure you with statements like, don't be so judgmental, or it's not your place to judge, or who are you to judge? The world's intention is to cultivate an atmosphere in which we fear being labeled intolerant and want to avoid any situation in which someone might say to us, I feel judged by you. 
When these forces, schemes, and pressures are blended with poor teaching, we might conclude that we should never pronounce or enact judgment on any matter or against any person. But isn't it a curious thing that even though the world urges us to be tolerant and to pass no judgment, the world itself is becoming increasingly intolerant, judgmental, and punishing. What's up with that? Well, when the world pressures you to refrain from passing judgment, it is not because the world doesn't believe in passing judgment. The world does believe in passing judgment as long as it is the one passing judgment. What the, what the world doesn't want is you passing judgment. But the world has no qualms about passing judgment. When a news article reports that someone falsely claimed something, it's making a moral judgment. When the word denier is thrown into the discussion, pandemic denier, election denier, climate change denier, a moral judgment is being made. Every time a social media company sees fit to flag a post as misinformation, it is making a morally serious claim about truth and error. We live in a cancel culture because certain people make judgments that other people don't measure up. When the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences expelled Harvey Weinstein and Bill Cosby from its ranks, when it banned Will Smith from attending the awards ceremony for a decade, it was brokering in moral assessments. When a year ago, President Biden said to unvaccinated Americans, We've been patient, but our patience is wearing thin, and your refusal has cost all of us, so please do the right thing. He was making a moral judgment as to the right course of action. The world has no qualms about making moral judgments and pronouncing them for all to hear. And what I want to say this morning is, neither should you. But that requires some explanation and qualification. In telling you that you should make and pronounce moral judgments, I am not telling you to do it because the world does it. The world is not our standard. So I'm not arguing that since the world excels in passing judgment, you should too. That's not my point. What I am doing is simply bringing to your attention that when the world and the media and the thought police tell you not to make moral judgments, they are being hypocritical because they themselves are making moral judgments all the time. Don't let their heated rhetoric throw you off balance. To be honest, it is inevitable that human beings will make moral judgments. To be a human being, to be created in the image of God, is to be a creature with moral consciousness. Every human being has a view of the world, a view of right and wrong, a view of fairness and unfairness. And as surely as the rooster crows and the clock strikes 12, it is inevitable that human beings will make and pronounce moral judgments. There is no such thing as a judgment-free society. The question is not whether you will judge, but how you will judge. The question is not if you will assume the role of judge, but what kind of judge you will be. The act of judging, of appraising and assessing and assigning praise or blame, all of this is inevitable and it's foolish to pretend otherwise. 
You will make moral judgments, and my intention in this sermon is to persuade you from Scripture that you ought to make moral judgments. The question is not if you will make moral judgments, but whether you will honor the Lord when you do so. Before we go any further, we need to recognize that the responsibility to make moral judgments falls into at least four different categories. First, we must judge ideas. Anyone, uh, anytime someone attempts to speak forth moral or theological truth, which is what I'm doing in this very sermon, you ought to be assessing and determining whether or not what has been said is true. The Jews in Berea were commended for doing this very thing when Paul was preaching the gospel to them. It says in Acts 17, 11, now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Second, we must judge courses of action. We're supposed to live our lives deliberately with our eyes wide open, giving careful thought to our steps. Ephesians 5 says, walk as children of light and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. If we ought to walk this way and not that way, then a judgment must be made. Third, sometimes we must judge disputes between people. The Apostle Paul instructed the Corinthians that in light of the fact that the saints will one day in the future judge the world, then even now in this present age, there ought to at least be some among us wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, 1 Corinthians 6.5. Paul says, if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? 1 Corinthians 6, 2 and 3. Fourth, we must judge people. I'll spend the majority of my message on this one, but all four categories are interrelated. We judge people on the basis of the doctrine they profess, their habitual courses of action which reveal their character and their manner of relating to other people. We must judge. But what does it mean to judge? We have to be clear about what is meant by the word judge. Don't equate judge and condemn. Don't equate judge and criticize. Don't equate judge and judgmental. One of the Merriam-Webster definitions of judgmental is, char is, is characterized by a tendency to judge harshly. I am not encouraging anyone to judge harshly. I am encouraging you to judge and to judge rightly. One of the Merriam-Webster definitions of judge is to, is to form an estimate or evaluation of. That, that's good. The Bible requires that we form right and proper estimates of everything. Sometimes the act of judging results in a negative judgment, and this might require us to confront or rebuke, but at other times the act of judging results in a positive judgment, in which case we approve or praise or vindicate 
At a basic level, to judge involves at least three activities. First, to judge begins with assessing or evaluating a thing or a person. Second, on the basis of the assessment, to judge is to determine the quality of that thing or person. The determination could be that that thing or person under consideration is right or wrong, wise or foolish, good or evil, mature or immature, blameless or blameworthy, qualified or disqualified. Third, to judge is to take whatever actions are necessary in order to put the determination into practice. You might have to verbally announce the judgment. In the case of a negative judgment, you might have to break off a relationship or impose a disciplinary action. In the case of a positive judgment, you might commend someone or commission them to a new task. For example, in Acts chapter 6, the apostles told the congregation to pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty of distributing food to the Greek-speaking widows, Acts 6.3. These believers had to confer among themselves as to which men met the criteria, which means they had to exercise judgment. But it was not a theoretical exercise. Once they mutually agreed upon seven men who passed the test, they had to go public with their decision and set these men before the apostles who then prayed for and commissioned them into service. The passage in Acts 6 is just one example where Christians are called to make a judgment concerning people. There are many such passages, which I'll get to in just a moment. But the upshot of these passages is that the church, and I don't just mean this church, I mean the church in general, must get over its discomfort with judging and assessing people. Some of you might wish that I was using a word other than judge to capture what I'm trying to communicate this morning. But I'm unwilling to use another term because I believe that the world and the devil are using the negative connotation of the term to intimidate you to disobey God. So I want to recapture the term and put it to good use. We need to stop being paralyzed by the world's hypocritical insistence that we not judge people. Instead, with humility and grace, we need to be resolved to do what God commands. Now here's the fundamental issue that I've been getting at all along. We must let God's standard govern the way that we think and speak and act concerning everything and everyone. That's what this whole message is about. The reason why the world wants to judge you but doesn't want you to judge it is because the world loves its own standard and hates God's standard. That's the issue. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, Jesus said in John 15, 19. If you were of the world, if you adhered to the world's standard, if you represented the world's value system, if you played by the world's rules, then the world would cheer you on as you make moral pronouncements and file lawsuits against preferred pronoun objectors. But, 
Jesus continues, because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you, John 15, 19. Since you are not of the world, since you have become a citizen of God's kingdom, since you are committed to the unchanging principles of God's word, since you are a representative of King Jesus, the world is utterly opposed to you declaring the king's standard in the public arena. If you want to entertain the king's word in the privacy of your own heart or home, oh, that's fine. But don't you dare speak up and call the world to account. Don't portray your faith publicly for all the world to see. Don't build a church that publicly proclaims and embodies the truth of the Bible. The world, by which I mean the people who are joined together in systematic rebellion against the Lord, this ungodly world hates you and you, dear Christians, cannot conform yourselves to their agenda. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. 2 Corinthians 6, 14-16. Since we are the temple of the living God, we must strive to be separate from the world system. With all our heart and mind, we must pursue holiness, honor Christ, walk in the light, and seek first God's kingdom and righteousness. And the only way to do this is to let God's standard govern the way that we think and speak and act in relation to everything and everyone. So that's the, that's the, that's the groundwork Now let me set before you five key principles that must guide our judgment of others. Principle number one, God's Word authorizes you and requires you to judge others. You have to see this for yourself in the text. Remember, to judge others means to assess and then to make a determination and then to take whatever actions are necessary in light of that determination. So I'm going to give you a sampling of what God commands. And I think you will see that these commands require us to make moral judgments concerning other people. Similar to the instruction that I mentioned earlier from Acts chapter 6, Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 3 that prospective deacons must be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons. In other words, the character of prospective deacons as well as The character and doctrine of prospective elders who were mentioned earlier must be assessed before they are commissioned into service. In Philippians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul tells the Philippians to pay special attention to people who are setting a faithful example. Philippians 3, 17 and 18 says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. The only way to keep your eyes on those who are walking the walk is to, first of all, have assessed that they are actually doing so. You have to judge them faithful before you can decide to keep your focus on their faithful example. In Romans chapter 16, verses 17 and 18, Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. 
for such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus, our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery they deceive the hearts of the naive. You cannot avoid troublemakers unless you have first of all determined that they are troublemakers. You must exercise judgment. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul tells the church, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. 1 Thessalonians 5.14. And then Jude says, toward the end of his letter, have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now, here's the thing. People don't walk around with a self-identifying sign on their t-shirt that says, faithful example, enemy of the cross, divisive, caught in the fire, full of doubt, idle, faint-hearted, help, weak. No. You have to judge people. You have to judge people in relation to the quality of their ideas, the quality of their habitual courses of action, and the quality of their relationships. You must judge them for their good so that you know how to minister to them. And you have to judge them for your own good because you need to know whether you're supposed to let them influence you. Are they a good example to imitate or are they a troublemaker to avoid? When Lydia was converted and baptized, she then invited Paul and his team to lodge in her house. And when she gave that invitation to Paul to lodge in her house, she didn't expect Paul to accept the invitation on the basis of the power of personality. Lydia said to Paul in Acts 16:15, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. Do you remember the message I shared with you two weeks ago? From 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 to 16, I said that a pastor ought to set an example for the flock, which means that you ought to observe his example, and that the pastor's progress should be evident to all. The only way that that could possibly work is if you're observing and evaluating the pastor's life. Otherwise, you would have no way of knowing if he was actually making progress over time. The Apostle John teaches us to have our eyes wide open to the lived-out character of other people and to draw the proper conclusion. 1 John 3, 7 and 8 says, Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. By this it is evident, verse 10, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. And in the next chapter, John commands us to test people who claim to be delivering a message from God. 1 John chapter 4 begins, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. 1 John 4, 1-3. These passages make it clear that the work of judging, discerning, 
assessing and evaluating is a necessary part of obedience. None of this instruction is designed for the purpose of stimulating your intellect or making you feel good about yourself. All of this instruction is eminently practical. We don't judge people because it makes us look good or puts us on a pedestal. There is no pedestal. Christ is seated at the Father's right hand, and we are His humble servants. At His direction, we judge others because we want to protect and promote the health of the church family and because we want to know how to relate to and minister to other people. So the first principle is that God's Word authorizes us and requires us to judge others. Now, here's the second principle. God's Word is the standard of judgment. This is hugely important. You are a moral creature who is making judgments on a regular basis. And the question is, what is your standard of judgment? There's only three possibilities. Your own self-made law, other men's man-made law, or God's law. Those are the only three options. What is your standard? You are not authorized to judge people on the basis of your opinions, preferences, and feelings. Don't go down that path. It's the path of lunacy and ruin, and countless multitudes are going down that path, slaves to themselves and to their endless and ever-shifting desires. Countless multitudes are willing to judge others on the basis of how something makes them feel. Just turn on the TV. Few are the people who are willing to judge others on the basis of Scripture alone. Scripture also teaches us that our beliefs about important secondary issues must not be the basis of reaching negative judgments concerning others. God's Word in Romans 14, 1-15-7 instructs me that I must not quarrel with you or pass a negative judgment on you on important secondary issues that are a matter of conscience. One believer's conscience allows him to enjoy a glass of wine at dinner. Another believer's conscience does not allow for that. So be it. No judgment is to be leveled in either direction. One believer's conscience allows him to enjoy recreation on the Lord's Day. Another believer's conscience requires a stricter observance. So be it. No judgment is to be leveled in either direction. That's the context for the instruction in Romans 14, 13 that says, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. In context, the instruction means, let us not make critical judgments toward one another on debatable matters or on matters of conscience. That's the sense. I am not authorized to judge you on the basis of how my conscience operates on secondary issues. This doesn't mean that we can't have mutually edifying conversations about those issues and encourage each other to grow. But there's to be no quarreling, no negative judgments, no troubling others on these matters. When God authorizes us to exercise judgment toward others, the authorization requires that we make judgments on the basis of God's Word. The same Paul who said not to quarrel over opinions in Romans 14.1, the same Apostle Paul did not say don't quarrel over sexual immorality. Read 
1 Corinthians chapter 5. We must contend for and faithfully apply the clear doctrinal and moral standards that Scripture sets forth. When professing believers violate these standards, we are obligated to take, uh, we're obligated to show them their error and to urge them to repent. And if they do not repent, then we're required to take disciplinary action against them. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 20, that we have to exclude them from the fellowship and treat them as non-believers. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5 that we have to expel them from our fellowship. This, This pronouncement and enactment of a negative judgment is the culmination of the entire judgment process. We have assessed, we have, we have determined, we have confronted, we have tried to encourage them to repent, and they have failed to do so. And only after all that do we have to discipline them. But the point right now is not so much the logistics of church discipline, but the fact that Scripture alone is our standard of judgment. As it says in 2 Timothy 3, 16, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Therefore, 2 Timothy 4, 2, preach the Word. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. And whenever, when, when God gives us His Word, He says, don't add to it, don't take away from it. Don't turn to the right, don't turn to the left. Stay on point in submission to Scripture. And so when it comes to assessing others, we must learn to die to our opinions, our preferences, our feelings, our personal conscience issues, and our cultural traditions. At the same time, we must learn to submit to the authority of Scripture alone as the divine standard for Christian faith and practice. So the first two principles taken together are that God's Word requires you to judge others in light of Holy Scripture. Now here's the third principle. God's Word requires that you judge yourself before you judge others. You must be in the habit of faithfully and consistently applying God's standards to yourself before you attempt to apply God's standards to other people. Now, this doesn't mean that you have to achieve perfection before you can speak truth into other people's lives, for in that case, we would would be handicapped from making moral judgments because we don't achieve perfection in this present life. The point is that we are to have integrity We are to be making an honest effort in our own life to live under the authority of Scripture. And as we're doing that and growing in that, then out of that and developing love for others, then we're in a position to make moral judgments concerning others. Matthew chapter 7 is clear about this. Verses 1 through 5. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Even within this very passage, it is obvious that the instruction, judge not, is not an absolute prohibition on judging other people because the passage envisions you 
actually being able to take the speck out of your brother's eye in verse 5. Further, the very next verse says, Matthew 7, 6, do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs, which, mean, which, which would be impossible to obey without first assessing people and determining that some of them are the spiritual equivalent of dogs and pigs. I'm reminded of Proverbs 9.8, which says, Do not reprove a scoffer, or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. Know who you're dealing with. Matthew 7, 1-5 teaches us that we must not engage in hypocritical or hypercritical judging. Hypocritical judging is addressing someone else's sin while refusing to address your own sin. Hypercritical judging is expressing greater concern about other people's minor faults than your own major faults. On both counts, the person who does the hypocritical and hypercritical judging is actually blind and is in no position to assess and help others. I, I, I really would like your help in taking the annoying little speck out of my eye. But not if you have a two-by-four protruding out of your eye and it's swinging back and forth as you walk toward me. Those who refuse to judge themselves but rush to judge others are in fact a danger to others. So what Jesus is teaching in Matthew 7, 1 to 5, is that we must be repentant and diligent in dealing with our own sin. Only then will we be humble, clear-eyed, and gracious in dealing with other people regarding their sin. Another way of saying this is that God's Word requires you to become utterly unimpressed with yourself before you embark on the journey of making moral judgments concerning others. If you're familiar with the Pharisees whom we encounter in the first four books of the New Testament, then you know that they were impressed with themselves. They were righteous in their own eyes. And this led them to look down upon and have contempt for other people. Pharisaical judgmentalism is obnoxious in God's sight and poisonous to human community. We should want nothing to do with it. But something beautiful happens when you realize that you are a great sinner who has been forgiven by the grace and mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ who loved you and gave himself for you. And something beautiful keeps happening as you realize that throughout your Christian life, God continues his mercy toward you and he's always treating you far better than you deserve. The cross of Jesus devastates our pride and produces humility in our hearts before the prophet Isaiah set out to announce judgment upon Judah and the whole world. He looked straight into God's perfect standard and said, woe is me, I am undone. And God had mercy on him and healed him and that made him able to go forth and proclaim the judgments of God. This grace of Jesus does not make us wishy-washy regarding God's unchanging standards, but the grace of Jesus does make us tender-hearted toward our fellow sinners. You must be resolved to judge rightly, but you must not relish the thought of judging harshly. Regarding our fellow believers, Paul said 
in Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. And regarding those who are lost, Paul said, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ, Philippians 3.18. Paul exemplifies the miracle of transformation that the world does not understand. He had an uncompromising commitment to God's standard and, at the same time, a deep and heartfelt compassion for other people. The world doesn't get that and can't replicate that. Frankly, only a person with a tender heart and a judicious mind and a skillful hand is equipped to get in my face and gently remove the annoying speck that is in my eye. And that tender heart comes from dealing with your own sin first and dealing with it in view of God's mercies. There are two final principles that we must briefly consider before we finish. So here's the fourth principle. God's Word requires that you relate to professing Christians differently than the way you relate to non-Christians. This principle operates on the assumption that you should expect Christians to act Christianly and you should expect non-Christians to act non-Christianly. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 5 verses 9 through 13, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. This is a really important principle, and our study today would not be complete without it. We have a special responsibility to judge people inside the church that does not extend to people outside the church. We bear responsibility for holding our Christian brothers and sisters accountable to God's standard. If a man professes to be a Christian and participate, participates in our church community and is thought to be a Christian brother, but he falls into serious and sustained and grievous sin against God's standard, then we have a responsibility to pronounce a negative judgment against him and to enact judgment against him. Do not associate with him, verse 11. Do not eat with him, verse 11. Expel him from the church family, verse 13. This should be done with a heavy heart, with love for him, that the disciplinary action would wake him up and produce repentance, 1 Corinthians 5.5 teaches that. And then also with love for the church, knowing that unaddressed sin in the body will spread like cancer. That's what 1 Corinthians 5.6 teaches. But when it comes to non-Christians, those outside the church, it's not our place to take disciplinary action against them. 
Of course, we must evangelize unbelievers. We must inform them of God's standard and urge them to repent of their sin and believe in the gospel. For example, in Acts chapter 24, Paul spoke with Governor Felix about faith in Christ Jesus. And Paul reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Acts 24 verses 24 and 25. So we're free to interact with unbelievers and we should do so with an eye on teaching them God's Word and persuading them to put their trust in Jesus. But we have no expectation that unbelievers would conform their lives to God's standards until they are converted. But for those who are are already converted or who claim to be converted, we have a special responsibility to hold them accountable to God's word. And sometimes holding them accountable will look like tough love. Finally, the fifth principle. God's word requires that you be profoundly aware that you are not the ultimate and final judge. This should strike us as manifestly obvious, but it must be mentioned. And one reason it must be mentioned is because people will sometimes misuse this truth as a reason why we shouldn't judge others at all. But I hope that I have persuaded you from the Bible that such reasoning is unfaithful to Scripture. My goal as a Christian and as a Christian teacher is to reason the way the Bible reasons, to draw the conclusions that Scripture draws, not to come up with my own. The Bible teaches that God alone is the ultimate and final judge, but the Bible doesn't reason that in light of that, therefore we shouldn't judge others. It doesn't reason that way. The Bible is clear that we, ha- we have a limited but important role in making moral assessments and enacting certain judgments in this present life. The knowledge that we are not the ultimate and final judge and the knowledge that the Lord is should have at least three effects, and I just mentioned them briefly. First, Knowing that the Lord is the ultimate and final judge should make us sober-minded. 2 Corinthians 5, 9 and 10 says, We make it our aim to please the Lord, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Second, knowing that the Lord is the ultimate and final judge should make us acknowledge our limitations in judgment. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, verses 2 to 5, But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart then each one will receive his commendation from God. We always have to let Scripture interpret Scripture. This passage should not be used as a reason to disobey the other passages where Scripture gives us instruction. But what this passage impresses upon us is that we must humbly recognize that our judgments, which we must make, are limited and provisional. Our judgments at best are partial and imperfect approximations of the comprehensive judgments that the Lord will pronounce on the last day. 
Therefore, we should never pronounce a judgment as if our pronouncement is the decisive and final word on the matter. It isn't. But when the Lord comes, all will be clear. Third, knowing that the Lord is the ultimate and final judge should make us eager to conform our judgments to the standard of judgment that the Lord has revealed in His Word. We want our present limited judgments to faithfully represent the Lord's future perfect judgments. For example, listen, when Paul says in 2 Timothy 4, 14 and 15, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. Paul is anticipating that Alexander is in big trouble unless he repents. On the other hand, when Paul speaks about Yodia and Syntyche and Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life, Philippians 4.3, Paul is expressing confidence that these specific people are true believers bound for heaven. Paul's assessing people in both cases. Paul knows that his assessment is not final and ultimate, but at the same time, he has reasonable confidence that his assessment is in line with the Lord's future perfect judgment. If we stay close to the Bible and have our eyes open and our resolve to see all things in light of Scripture, then we may also have reasonable confidence that our present limited judgments will faithfully represent the Lord's future perfect judgments. Remember, the Lord is not playing games with us. He's revealed to us the standard by which He will judge the world. And we're to use this standard now. Brothers and sisters, God's Word requires that you make judgments, that you make these judgments on the basis of God's standard as set forth in Scripture, that you judge yourself first in view of God's mercies that you have a special responsibility to exercise judgment inside the church and that you be humbly aware that the Lord alone is the ultimate and final judge. Blessed is the church that is diligent to do what God requires and that does it because of God's transforming grace. Let's pray. Father, I pray that this message would generate fruitful thinking and fruitful conversations. I pray that you would sharpen us, refine us, strengthen us, equip us to live humbly as followers of Jesus and to do all that you call us to do. In Jesus' name, amen.